0: The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room Podcast. I'm John Noggle, Associate Professor of Warfighting Studies at the U.S. Army War College, and your host today. I'm interviewing Professor Nellie Lahoud, a fellow War College faculty member who has written one of the most consequential books I've read in some time. Nellie's book, The Bin Laden Papers, is based on an extraordinary intelligence coup, the capture of tens of thousands of documents by the Navy SEAL team that killed Osama bin Laden in Abbottabad, Pakistan, a decade ago. Those documents were declassified, and Nellie and her team sifted through some 97,000 files and identified al-Qaeda's internal communications, nearly 6,000 pages in Arabic. Nellie read them closely, finding out incredibly important information about the enemy who killed thousands of Americans 20 years ago in the worst terror attack in history. That attack, in turn, drove American invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq that have been the dominant feature of the American national security landscape this century. Nellie's work chronicles Al-Qaeda's history after September 11th, providing important insights into the effects of those wars. Nellie. Welcome to War Room.
1: Thank you for the very kind words that you said, John. Um, It means a lot to me, and thank you for hosting me.
0: I'm fascinated by your personal intellectual journey. Can you start with how you became fluent in Arabic?
1: Um, I have the advantage of being a native Arabic speaker. I uh, was born and grew up in Beirut, Lebanon, and... um, English was the third language in the school that I attended. Having said that, um, and I'm sure uh, Arabist listeners would understand exactly what I'm about to say, though I have the ability to read Arabic literature with ease, um, I always rely on dictionaries and lexicons when I'm reading texts to uh, look up difficult words and appreciate the subtleties and meanings in the text. Arabic is not just a language, it's a lifetime commitment.
0: Obviously, you learned English along the way as well. Where did you Where did you go to university? Where did you do your graduate work? Those sorts of things. It's an interesting story. I,
1: I, I'm also Australian in addition to being American and, and Lebanese, so I have three passports. Uh, I did my I completed my tertiary education in Australia my undergraduate studies were at Monash University in Melbourne and my PhD was at the Australian National University in Canberra um, so and some years later I've become American I consider myself a New Yorker as well so
0: and and when did you become interested in national security issues how did that happen
1: During my undergraduate years, I um, studied, I majored in politics and religion at Monash University. And for my PhD thesis, I um, explored how um, contemporary Arab thinkers appropriate and make use of the past, specifically Islamic philosophy and Islamic theology, to advance their own political agenda. Um, so my interest was bent towards political theory and, and um, religious studies, if you like. Um, and this really, I didn't know at the time, I did not anticipate that all of this was going to prepare me so well to uh, understand and study the jihadi groups. Um, it,
0: because you started this work before September 11th?
1: I did. I did. Um, and so my interest began to shift with, with world politics. Um, as I said, I was really more interested in reading text and political theory and political philosophy. And then gradually in time, because of, because of students' interest and because of my own interests, I, uh, uh, I began to shift my own focus of research. And it turned out really that all the preparation for my undergraduate work prepared me so well to be able to study. These jihadi groups, and I say this because um, jihadi groups reject the world order of nation states, and um, they want to use religion as the alternative paradigm. Uh, and and to to that end, I was able to make use of all the studies that I thought were irrelevant for world politics. But this became um, this turned out really preparing me. This prepared me well to. Um, understand and appreciate these issues that became the central focus of national security, especially after 9-11. Mm-hmm.
0: And, and perhaps the most important of these jihadi groups, of course, is al-Qaeda. Can you tell me about Osama bin Laden's background? Where did he come from, his own study of uh, and understanding of religion and of politics that, that led to uh, what would ultimately be the, the book, The Bin Laden Papers?
1: To be clear, um, the book that I wrote does not delve into Bin Laden's background. I learned from the studies, the books of uh, Steve Cole and Peter Bergen mm-hmm. about, about Bin Laden's background, the wealth of his family, how people who uh, knew him, what what they had said about him, and so on. Um, but just to build on some of the introductory notes that you mentioned in. Uh, at the outset John the the book is based on bin laden's personal papers personal correspondence all the all the, the the personal papers that he composed after 9/11 starting 2002 until he was killed in May 2011 and these are um these are documents that were not meant for public consumption in addition to his own to his own letters. We also have some of Al-Qaeda's internal communiques. We have letters composed by Bin Laden's family, including his wives and daughters. So we capture a window into Bin Laden uh, that has never been, that had not existed before. We get to know him uh, uh, pretty well. Uh, f- since Since our conversation is about national security issues, let me focus on the motivations of Bin Laden and what he sought to achieve through uh, building his organization and the attacks that led to uh, uh, catastrophic consequences for the United States and, and for the world. Um, we learn from, from his letters that his political objective was to uh, uh, reunite Muslims as a world community, the Ummah. He wants to He he saw Muslims not as citizens of states, but as part of a global community, uh, as the Ummah. This is the entity that united Muslims before the modern era of nation states. He saw himself as a champion of Muslim causes, and he was genuine about this. He cared a great deal about the plight of Palestinians, the Kashmiris, Muslims in Burma, and so on. And he, was and, and he fought,
0: or, or, or at least uh, was associated with, was hanging around as um, Muslims were fighting against the Soviet Union in Afghanistan.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. He, he, he went from his birthplace, from Saudi Arabia, to Afghanistan to fight in causes that had nothing to do with his own nationality. He, he wanted, he saw, as I said, he saw Muslims as a global community, transcending borders, ethnicity, race and so on. So he was, uh, um, he, he was genuine about,
0: mm-hmm. about yeah, he, he put his money where his mouth was. He lived a life oh. of, of, very wealthy family lived a life of great privilege and, and sort of gave it all up to, to sort of literally live in caves and and fight in a war that, that wasn't about Saudi Arabia at all. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and, so so and,
0: Interesting, unusual, sort of a, almost a, 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 a prophet or a a true believer uh, uh, there's there has to be an islamic word uh an arabic word for this
1: i don't know about an arabic word but i've heard that it is i've read uh that something that a line that is attributed to karl marx that terrorists are dangerous idealists, and um and bin laden fits that perfectly he was a dangerous idealist Uh, there's nothing in the letters um, about him that I found to have compromised his image in the eyes of his supporters. Uh, he did sacrifice his fortune for the cause that he believed in and that he championed. But to go back to, to your question, he, uh, um, in order to remedy the plight of Muslims around the world, um, he, he wanted the jihadis and he believed that the jihadis could bring down Uh, uh, autocratic rulers that reign over, that rule over Muslim-majority states. And what was in between, what stood between this objective and reality was U.S. support for these dictators. And he was convinced that if the U.S. were to withdraw its military presence from Muslim-majority states, the jihadis would be able to fight these autocratic regimes on a level playing field and in his mind, that they would be able to uh, um, bring them down.
0: So and if he so, could defeat the far enemy, the United States, then the near enemy would, would fall as well, and he could create this the uh, uh, caliphate, the, the global sort of empire of Muslims.
1: He didn't, he didn't put much thought into that. He, he spoke, the only thing about the caliphate that we hear is that he wanted to reunite the Ummah. The caliphate was something in the distance. His, his main focus was about, you know, defeating defeating uh, uh, and bringing down these, these regimes. And, and he wanted, the main objective of his attacks was to force the United States to withdraw its military forces from Muslim-majority states. He started uh, uh, with, with the 1998 East Africa bombings, then with USS GOL and this comp- and then later culminated in the 9-11 attacks. Um, what he envisaged and what he hoped was that these would be attacks that would deliver, particularly the 9-11 attack, what he called a decisive blow that would get the Americans to take to the streets. He wanted the Americans to replicate the Vietnam anti-war protest so that Americans would call on their governments to withdraw from Muslim-majority states. And this is where he would be able to achieve his own objective.
0: And and he had he had clearly never visited the United States, if he thought that uh, hitting the Pentagon and the World Trade Center would cause that kind of reaction, because he got about hundred eighty degrees out from that.
1: Well, he miscalculated badly, and this is really where um, two other aspects emerge out of understanding Bin Laden's objectives. Two other sides of him emerge. Firstly, we get to know him as a planner, and uh, there's something, he was was an impressive planner. By that, I mean he thought of all the small details uh, that could go into an operation. Specifically, he was impressive in terms of using simple weaponry to achieve spectacular attacks uh, uh, and effects. Uh, uh, The other side that emerges out of these letters is precisely what you said, which is a bin Laden who was uh, uh, at best sophomoric in terms of his understanding of the American public, of American politics, of international relations. And shockingly, um, he he, he did not understand the limits of terrorism. And this is where he ended up being a failed terrorist leader. He failed at uh, the things that he wanted to achieve. He, he emerges as, uh, uh, you know, as, as, as an impressive planner, as uh, a dangerous idealist, but also as a failed terrorist leader.
0: Why do you think that was what led him what led the same person to be able to conduct the most successful terror attack in world history cost the United States thousands of lives on September 11th additional thousands of lives in the the following wars in Iraq and Afghanistan tens of thousands of people hurt many of them my friends trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars of of expenses for the United States and these wars in, in, in bills that will, will, will keep coming for decades to come. Uh, But, but the portrait that emerges in your book is of a a sad man in sort of uh, imprisoned in a house in in a foreign country. What, uh, how, how can, and and I'm I'm I'm. This is really what I want to get at in this podcast because I think for many years the the United States Americans people who fought in in these wars many of our listeners thought of Osama bin Laden as as ten feet tall and while he was tall he wasn't that tall and he really wasn't that good. No, after that um, one really good strike.
1: Yeah, I mean you're absolutely right. Uh, he, it's it's a very diminutive bin laden that emerges out of these out of these letters um, he was uh, he was somebody who was confined to his to his compound um, and uh, I think some of these issues that that you raised um, are also part of the miscalculations and the way that some of the counterterrorism community also um, misunderstood what was happening in the world of al-Qaeda and the world of global jihad. So I think for about a decade, he appeared to be somebody who was too powerful uh, when, uh, when in reality he was not. Uh, uh, and we find that... We find that in the letters between himself and his, and his associates. We find them struggling, whether it's finances, it's inability to move. I think, uh, you know, the, the, there were many impediments. After, after December 2001, after the collapse of the Taliban regime, the letters make it uh, very clear that al-Qaeda was shattered by then. And Al-Qaeda's ability to mount international terrorism came to a halt. This was this was, he continued, though he continued to to speak of the 9-11 attacks as victories uh, from his perspective, by 2010 he admitted in his own letters to his associates that the attacks did not deliver what they hoped to achieve. And in 2010, when everybody was still, you know, when the national security apparatus was still talking about this powerful bin Laden and this powerful Al Qaeda, he was writing to his associates telling them that unless we do something, Al Qaeda as an organization is going to come to an end. Uh, the world that he ended up, um, uh, uh, unleashing or creating as a result of the 9-11 attacks is not the world that he wanted. That's not how he wanted to change the world. Though the world really changed as a result of the 9-11 attacks, it changed in ways that he had not planned and that he did not desire. So again, the miscalculations that he made through these attacks um, did not lead, did not achieve the objectives that he set out to achieve.
0: And it, I think it's safe to say Uh, This, I think, was the the major implication of your book, for me at least, was that um, miscalculations from the other side, from the American side, our friends and allies who supported us in in our efforts in Iraq and in Afghanistan, um, we believed that we were defending the world against an Al-Qaeda that continued to present an imminent threat. And, and what you argue in your book, what you learned from the papers, is something very different. And I, I'd, I'd like you, if, if you could, to, to go back to um, the immediate aftermath of the September 11th attacks the death of Ahmed Shah Massoud at al-Qaeda's hands. They had a really good September 10th and September 11th, but it was arguably catastrophic success. And then what happened to al-Qaeda uh, immediately afterwards?
1: Sure. So what we learn from bin Laden's notes about the events that led to the decision of doing 9-11, uh, he, he faced some resistance from the Afghan Taliban um but he clearly had the support of Mullah Omar Mullah Omar throughout the letters he comes uh, he he comes across as somebody who is to use bin Laden's language he was a sincere leader who was steadfast but uh, we learn from the papers and from other works that were that were actually made available by other jihadi leaders who wrote about the concerns among some Afghan leaders about Bin Laden's ongoing activities. My sense is my just surmising uh, and what happened, because I I had to make some speculations judging by some of the notes that Bin Laden was writing. I suspect um, that because the Afghan leaders were very much concerned about Sheikh Masaud, Ahmad Sheikh Masaud, and bin Laden kept on arguing with them, this is in his own personal notes, that you are concerned about this five kilometers when I'm concerned about the big picture. You know, this is the world that I want to change, that that, that the Muslims are facing hardship, uh, uh, and you're concerned about those five kilometers in, in the in the Pangaea Valley. Clearly, he came to realize that in order to win the support of the Afghan Taliban, um, he needed to to get Ahmad Shah, uh, Shah Massoud, and my my thinking is that this was the pro quo and I think he got he got the blessing of Mullah Omar um, to go ahead with the nine eleven after he got Ahmad after they assassinated Ahmad Shah Massoud. So what we what we learn from the letters is that. Al-Qaeda's leaders did not anticipate that the United States would go to war in response to 9-11. What they thought was that at most, the United States would respond with some limited strikes, as they had done after the 1998 East, East Africa bombings, you know, having some strikes against some of Al-Qaeda's uh, um, training camps in Afghanistan. So when Operation Enduring Freedom was launched, this was, this was a shock. And they found themselves uh, um, in disarray. They didn't have a plan A. So the letters um, reveal that bin Laden had to disappear out of the scene, out of necessity. And he uh, did not communicate with his associates for nearly three years. He resumed contact with his associates in 2004. Um, And we know this because the letters in 2004 are reprising him about what happened during the past three years and about you know his absence from the scene and so on and so forth. So we know that there was a period of three years that they were not in communications. Now do we, we know also where he like, was during those we don't three know, years? We don't know. I have some hunches probably in Peshawar, but that but I but I but this is just a hunch. Um uh, uh, but we we learn um also that Al Qaeda's many of Al-Qaeda's senior leaders were captured or killed. Initially, um, Al-Qaeda's leaders and members of Al-Qaeda fled to Pakistan, where uh, they were met there by what the letters say as a comprehensive campaign that captured uh, uh, many of Al-Qaeda's leaders. To quote them, 600 brothers were captured by the Pakistani authorities. Some of them ended up crossing illegally into Iran, um, there they were supported by some Sunni militant groups who are opposed to the Iranian regime and they were able to uh, rent some houses uh, under the radar using some of the IDs of these Sunni militants they're referred to as the Belush brothers and the letters um, and we find out that uh, for about 10 months they were able to to uh, live um, freely in, or not freely, but but in hiding in in Iran. But at a certain point, the Iranian government was able to track them down and detain them. They were detained around December two thousand and two. Among those who were detained um, was one of Bin Laden's wives, uh, their son, and six children of by by his first wife, Najwa. Um, and most of Al Qaeda's senior leaders were detained in. In Iran, so um, those who remained uh, at large were the second-tier Al Qaeda leaders, and these were the ones who were corresponding with Bin Laden in two thousand and four. The other senior leader was Ayman al-Zawahiri, who became Bin Laden's successor after he was killed, and who was also killed last year. So, uh, uh, but but also to appreciate what was happening to Al Qaeda, we're talking about. Fighters who had gone to Afghanistan, not as agile fighters, but they had families and children, uh, some of them up to four wives uh, with their children. So they had to leave Afghanistan and they had nowhere else to go. Um, so this was, this was a, you know, to use uh, one of the letters, uh, they report to bin Laden about their afflictions about the harrowing ordeals that they had to go through. These were 2004, and they continued to talk about the ongoing nightmare that they were facing. So Al-Qaeda clearly uh, was was shattered. Uh, Now, just to be clear, the other international terrorist attack that Al-Qaeda carried out after 9-11 is the November 2002 Mombasa bombings. And uh, the reason it was able to pull it off because the operatives who had been dispatched to plan those attacks had been dispatched before 9/11, and they did not have to go through the the ordeals that there that the others had to go through in Afghanistan. Uh, but beyond that, there is nothing in the letter, in the letters, that suggests that Al Qaeda was able to be uh, was able to carry out any of the attacks that were attributed to Al Qaeda after 9/11.
0: And and so you've covered um, really the big some of the big revelations of the book to me that have caused me to to think very hard about things that I I thought were true and that it turns out might not have been but but the the things that surprised me were uh, how um, anti Al Qaeda uh, Iran was and and not just in words but in deeds how effectively Pakistan worked to eradicate Al Qaeda uh, from its territory. And, and as you say, uh, that, that Al Qaeda uh, essentially ceased to be a functioning terror organization uh, after December, 2001, with the exception of the Mombasa attack, which only happened because those folks had gotten out before September 11th. And so, um, what this this leads me to is to ask a uh, uh, what I is, is a very hard question for me to ask. Was Al Qaeda still a threat to America after the fall of the Taliban in two thousand and one?
1: I mean, in terms of aspirations, yes, uh, but in terms of capability, no. And I I think uh, one of the things that also emerges in the papers is the success of the CIA drone campaign, um, because uh, the letters continue to report about, you know, to use their language, the martyrdom of brothers. Uh, and they refer to the drones as a calamity with which we've been afflicted. They refer to it as an evil. Uh, it, um, the drones were clearly uh, very successful. And Al-Qaeda was able, again, through the letters I learned about this, to uh, establish uh, what we might want to call the drone spy nexus. Uh, They believed that the ISI, Pakistan's ISI, was helping the CIA a great deal in North Waziristan, where most of Al-Qaeda's members were hiding. Uh, they they speak about the area being infested with spies um, they they were concerned I mean those who were hiding in North waziristan kept urging bin Laden and al- zawahiri to turn down their language their public uh, their public statements against Pakistan because they wanted Pakistan to stop its support um, uh, uh with of the, it supported the CIA uh, uh, with a drone campaign, so um, there were many successes in terms of what the US was was doing. Uh, you can say it was it was relentless in terms of uh, uh, in terms of how they tried to make sure to ensure that that not only they couldn't be operational, they couldn't even move. In North Waziristan, and and that that comes that comes out really clearly in in the letters. It was it was made very clear. And when Bin Laden found out about what was happening, particularly uh, the fact that that even Al Qaeda lost the support of the Afghan Taliban, which is really the the, the other shocking revelation for me from from the letters, um, they uh, uh, Bin Laden ordered his associates, particularly the top leaders, to hide just the same way as he was hiding in in Pakistan. Uh, at one point, we find him calling on his associates, say, you know, you need to evacuate the area. Clearly, the area is exposed, um, and this became very clear for, for him after Bob Woodward published the book Obama's Wars. Some of its pages were translated for bin Laden and he came to realize that North waziristan is really not safe for his associates. So we find him writing to his associates saying, you yeah, evacuate, do the same as I'm doing, come and hide in Pakistan along with some Pakistani brothers. Nobody's going to find out who is hiding in those places, just as his situation was. And we find uh, uh, his associates responding that the brothers would rather be martyred here rather than being captured by Pakistan's ISI. So clearly, al-Qaeda's enmity of both Iran and Pakistan is is made clear throughout the letters. There's there's absolutely no doubt about it.
0: And... and- How about relations between Al Qaeda and Saddam Hussein's Iraq? Did we need to invade Iraq in March two thousand and three to protect ourselves against terrorism?
1: Well, the um, Secretary of State, the late Colin Powell, uh, made a case at the United Nations in February two thousand and three, just a couple of months or a month before the the invasion, that uh, Saddam Hussein was. He, he referred to Saddam Hussein's ties with al-Qaeda. Uh, it, it clearly, there was, there was none of that. This was, uh, there
0: were no ties.
1: There were no ties, absolutely not. And uh, the group, the jihadi group that emerged on the scene and that rose on the scene as a result of the Iraq war, the group that was led by Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, uh, this group merged with al-Qaeda in late 2004, not before the war and um and and to be clear zarqawi merged with al-qaeda because he wanted to acquire the al-qaeda brand not because yeah he he wanted the brand that's right he didn't there was no operational control no operational control no resources
0: coordination really absolutely from your your book right and they
1: couldn't i mean they couldn't i mean even even when when there were letters between al-qaeda's leaders and various jihadi groups that emerge on the scene to fill the vacuum, because al-Qaeda was doing nothing afterwards. Um, We find that al-Qaeda had little to no influence over these groups. Often we find al-Qaeda's leaders urging these groups to do less and not more terrorism. Uh, um, And this isn't to romanticize al-Qaeda here, but they wanted them to focus on the chief enemy, which was the United States. They wanted them to focus their attacks against the United States, just as al-Qaeda did.
0: Not Whereas, against killing fellow Muslims.
1: Exactly. And we find bin Laden by 2010 referring to these jihadi groups as a liability to global jihad, uh, writing that, that, that Muslims find them repulsive. Um, bin so, Laden
0: wanted Zarqawi to tone it down.
1: Oh, he wanted to, to turn it down. and. Um, uh, uh, and in fact, you know, we not just Zarqawi, but also other groups to to tone it down. But also, I think that the needs what it, what is important for us to understand, the reason why we have these papers is because um bin Laden could not freely communicate with his associates. The only means of communications was through these letters that were typed electronically and that were saved on um, SIM cards and delivered through a complex chain of couriers to his associates in North Waziristan. He didn't have access, or he didn't want to use the telephone or the internet. And that's the reason why he was able to stay under the radar
0: for so long. And not be visited by a drone strike.
1: Absolutely, to evade capture. Not be found
0: found by ISI.
1: Exactly, exactly. so, it, with that in mind, even in the best of scenarios, in the best of cases, it was it was a challenge to be able to um, command or control these jihadi groups that were that were acting in Al Qaeda's name. But what's more, we find in many of the letters of these jihadi groups is that. They didn't want to comply with Al-Qaeda's advice. And we find bin Laden frustrated, bin Laden and his associates frustrated, particularly with a group in Yemen that supposedly was Al-Qaeda's protege. And we find bin Laden so frustrated with the leader of of that group in yemen and and educating them about the basics of al-qaeda and what they should be doing and
0: so on reading these letters it felt i have a teenager in my house and it felt exactly like that kind of relationship like you know i spawned you and you were being a bad child sort of i don't want to i'm 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 projecting now but but uh, there was a, a almost a paternal sense of frustration from Bin Laden in in my reading of the letters.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm.
0: And so we've we've learned um, from from the Bin Laden papers, from the good work of the Navy SEAL team, uh, the CIA analysts, and and your team, and your personal translations. We've learned that that's. Um, Al Qaeda had nothing to do with, with Iraq, no support from, uh, Iran or from Pakistan, uh, even lost the support of the Afghan Taliban after September 11th was, was isolated, unable to communicate, uh, oh, com- able to communicate only with great difficulty, had little operational reach. Um, you are suggesting, I think it's, I think it's safe to say, um, that, that, uh, Al-Qaeda did not present much of a threat to the United States after September 11th, and certainly there was no reason uh, to invade Iraq in order to get at Al-Qaeda. In fact, al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda's affiliates, uh, copycats, came into Iraq only in the wake of the American invasion. Saddam would never have let them in. Is that all, is that all accurate?
1: I know that he's accurate. In fact, uh, when when bin Laden's uh, second-tier leaders were reporting to him in 2004 after they resumed contact, um, and they were discussing in their letters about the afflict- their afflictions, they only had one good story to tell him. He said, you know, when God heard of our afflictions, he opened the door of jihad for us in, in Iraq. We should pack up and leave. So Iraq was, uh, was a lifeline for al-Qaeda. The reason... Not not that they were able to engage in Iraq, but it gave the brand a lifeline, even though they themselves were not present in Iraq. But it 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 gave the brand a lifeline um, that continued to uh, uh, to be able to incite others to to join the jihad as if Al Qaeda was being operational when it wasn't.
0: Uh, and our friend Peter Bergen uh, has made that argument before, of course, that, that um, September 11th was catastrophic success for al-Qaeda, but, but that um, uh, they, they got really a, a, a huge rejuvenation from the American invasion of Iraq in March of 2003. Our friend Peter has also said that al-Qaeda's best day since September 11th was August 15th, 2021, when the Taliban regained control of Afghanistan uh, almost exactly 20 years uh, after uh, the United States, the Northern Alliance, had recaptured it. Can you talk to a little bit, and I know this this is, is, of course, not in the bin Laden papers, it may be in the next edition, but can you talk to your assessment of the strength of Al Qaeda in Pakistan and in Afghanistan now. Did did the the retaking of Afghanistan by the Taliban give new hope to Al Qaeda, and, and the threat to the United States from that part of the world now?
1: Uh, I make it clear in the acknowledgments to the book uh, how important Peter Bergen was for me and for his mentorship. Uh, I think my book. Wouldn't wouldn't have been written had it not been for the support of Peter Bergen. But I do disagree on that on that front with Peter on about the fact that Al Qaeda Al Qaeda's best day was the return of the Taliban. I say this because the letters make it really clear that for a very long time, Bin Laden, his successor Ayman Zawahiri, and other Al Qaeda leaders had been fearing these same Taliban leaders who came back to power, they named them by name in the letters as being the insincere Taliban movement, the hypocrites who were ready to sell Al-Qaeda and render Al-Qaeda impotent in order to return to Kabul, and they were ready to make a deal with the Americans. They started writing about this as early as 2007. So, the 2021, from my perspective, um, is, not, is not a mistake in terms of withdrawal. My, my question about, about what happened in terms of the U.S. policies towards Afghanistan, why did it take so long to leave Afghanistan? Uh, why, did it, uh, why did the United States end up signing an agreement with the same group that they excluded? Back in two thousand and two, and why did they exclude the Afghan Taliban from the negotiations to bring peace to Afghanistan? So some of these miscalculations are, are uh, um, uh, uh, have have led to to major consequences, and and uh, uh, not you know not just wasting resources, but human lives on all fronts, both Americans and, and Afghan uh, lives. So um, it, it, I don't see al-Qaeda gaining anything by um, the return of those specific Afghan Taliban to power because bin Laden made it clear that he wanted to weaken these, these insincere Taliban and strengthen the sincere Taliban. So clearly, if those insincere Taliban are back in power, that is a defeat for Al Qaeda, not for the United States. Now, the the question is, again, um, moving forward, are there? You know, that there needs to be some cold calculations about whether a failed Taliban. Would serve the United States better or not? I don't think. I don't think that that the failure of the Taliban is in the U.S. interest at the moment, particularly when ISIS-K and other groups would like to, uh, uh would like to really um, see the Taliban failing and for them to to fill the vacuum. So I think the alternative to the Taliban is worse than the Taliban, and I and I and I am. Being cold in, in my calculations. And I think the policies towards Afghanistan um, need to weigh these considerations in mind.
0: And um, certainly the, the unclassified reports we've seen in the press from, from congressional briefings, uh, from from my West Point classmate, Eric Carilla, the, the CENTCOM commander from uh, the director of the Central Intelligence Agency, the, the National uh, intelligence um, uh, analysis that, that has been publicly released is that uh, we are again seeing a threat or a new threat uh, in Afghanistan uh, as, as some of that territory becomes less governed as America doesn't have as many intelligence sources on the ground there as we no longer have Bagram Air Base from which to operate and, and so my fear uh, is remains that the end of this story has not yet been written although, of course, the end of bin Laden's story was written by those SEALs who gave you the material for this absolutely terrific book. Uh, your closing words, Nelly?
1: Thank you again for hosting me, and um, and, and I hope that uh, that some of those, uh, the fact that, that Al-Qaeda was shattered is a small consolation to those who are victims of Al-Qaeda. I know it's not the same; it's not the same thing. But uh, but it is it is a consolation to know that the man responsible for the 9-11 attacks was powerless and confined to his compound by the end of his days.
0: And and uh, ultimately was brought to justice by uh, the armed forces of the United States of America far far later than he should have been. But but nonetheless, I I, th- I think it was essential that um the world know that you cannot destroy american lives in that way uh, attack the united states homeland and and hope to survive and and so so that was um it was good to to read in your book uh in the bin laden papers the the devastation that was wreaked upon al-qaeda in the immediate aftermath of september 11th if deeply discouraging to learn that um, much of the work we did in both uh, in Iraq and and I'm, I'm not as convinced, but perhaps in Afghanistan as well was unnecessary. Uh, and, and certainly could have been done more wisely um, if we'd had a better understanding of the principles at play, of the the Dynamics inside Al-Qaeda, between Al-Qaeda and the various Taliban uh, organizations. And, and, and so uh, I think you've done uh, really important as well as groundbreaking work on, on the inner workings of what we thought was our principal adversary. Of the past 20 years and i just i just really want to encourage everyone who's listening to read the bin laden papers i think it'll help american soldiers and scholars better understand the wars we've been fighting and will also help us better prepare for future threats to the west i I really feel as if nelly has done an enormous service to her third country um but, but the one that has the privilege of of having her company now. So thanks thanks to Nellie for a, a terrific conversation, uh, uh, one of many I've, I've had with her over the course of the last year. Thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments and suggestions for this and future episodes, and please subscribe to A Better Piece on your podcatcher of choice. Once you have, please rate and review this podcast because that's how more people can hear about us so we can continue to grow this community for conversations just like this one. This conversation is over, but we look forward to welcoming you again. Until next time from the War Room, I'm John Noggle. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening.